Welcome to the Modern Art Notes Podcast. I'm Tyler Green. Thanks as ever to those of you who have given us ratings and reviews on the various podcatchers. Along with personal recommendations, tell a friend. Their funky algorithms are the main ways listeners find new shows, so we're really grateful for your help. If you haven't rated or reviewed us on Apple Podcasts or wherever, please do. It takes only about 10 seconds. On to the show. This week, Sylvia Plymac Mangold. She's included in Studio Visit, Selected Gifts from Agnes Gund, which was organized by the Museum of Modern Arts Ann Temkin and Kara Maines and is on view at MoMA through July 22nd. Sylvia Plymac Mangold rose to prominence in the late 1960s, at the end of a decade dominated by minimalism and pop art. Her paintings, seemingly rooted in realism but often undermining it, played with perspective, flatness, and often engaged the centuries-long tradition of painters making paintings about painting. In 1994, the Albright Knox Art Gallery in Buffalo organized a major retrospective of her paintings. Two years earlier, the University of Michigan Museum of Art organized a Works on Paper survey. Mangold's work has long been collected by major museums, such as the Kunstmuseum Winterthur in Switzerland, the St. Louis Art Museum, the Nelson Atkins, the Metropolitan, Brooklyn, the Whitney, and more. On the second segment, the Chiaroscuro Woodcut in Renaissance Italy at the Los Angeles County Museum of Art. But first, Sylvia Plymac Mangold after the break. The Museum of Fine Arts Houston presents Peacock in the Desert, the Royal Arts of Jodhpur, India, an exhibition showcasing four centuries of royal treasures on view in the United States for the very first time. Masterpieces that illustrate the history and artistic legacy of the Rathor dynasty are featured, including Jewels, paintings, furnishings, textiles, a Rolls-Royce, a vintage aircraft, and much more. On view through August 19th. Visit mfah.org India for more. The Guggenheim Museum in New York presents Edouard Manet's painting Woman in Striped Dress in a new light after the conclusion of a multi-year conservation effort made possible through a generous grant from the Bank of America Art Conservation Project. On view in the Guggenheim's collection gallery through the end of August, the work now highlights Manet's inspired brushwork and a nuanced range of deep blue-violet and cool white tones to the striped dress, which for decades had read as black with discolored white stripes. Learn more and plan your summer visit today at guggenheim.org danhauser. Feels, an L.A. psychedelic rock band fronted by the electrifying Lena Geronimo, matches raw power and authentic emotion to create edgy, high-energy shows. Experience them Saturday, July 14th at 6 p.m. as part of Off the 405, an annual summer concert series that brings today's most exciting bands to the Getty for an evening of live music amid stunning architecture and sunset views. Learn more at getty.edu 360. Known for his collaborations with pop icons and fashion house Louis Vuitton and for vibrant anime-inspired characters, Japanese artist Takashi Murakami has blurred the boundaries throughout his career between high and low culture, ancient and modern, east and west. In a new exhibition organized by the Museum of Contemporary Chicago, the Modern Art Museum of Fort Worth offers a major retrospective of his paintings, featuring 50 works that span three decades of his career, from the artist's earliest mature works to his recent monumentally scaled paintings. The exhibition, titled Takashi Murakami, The Octopus Eats Its Own Leg, shows how Murakami's art is rooted in traditions of Japanese painting and folklore and highlights the artist's careful attention to crafted materials. Takashi Murakami, The Octopus Eats Its Own Leg, on view at the Modern Art Museum of Fort Worth through September 16th. Learn more at themodern.org. 
And we're back. Sylvia Plymac Mangold, welcome to the Modern Art Notes podcast. Oh, good morning, Tyler. Your first famous works are the floor paintings you started making in, I think, 1967, at the time you were about to turn 30 years old. And your floor paintings are an extraordinary, strikingly variable, decade-long body of work. But before we get to them, exhibitions of your work seem to always start with a floor painting in 1967. And, and noticing that has made me wonder what you were doing before you started the floor paintings. So before I was doing interior and I had furniture on the floors, you know, chairs. Like I would, I have a painting that, that of a chair that's upside down on a, the floor on, on this gray parquet floor that was where we lived on the Lower East Side. It was, you know, our apartment. And when our son was taking his nap, I would be working on my work. And this is, so I would paint these furnitures on the floor and in different, like sometimes I would put two chairs in different relationship to each other on the floor. And, you know, the upside down chair was one of, you know, I thought that was, humorous and also changing, dislocating its use, having it as this object rather than a chair. But as I worked, I found that what really engaged me was when I painted the floor and the grid. And the grid in the floor helped me locate the furniture. But as I worked, I realized that I, if I took the furniture out and just painted the floor plane, that that had a, a more abstract relationship to the edges of the canvas. So it it was the edge of the canvas and then this tilted plane. And I really liked the simplicity of that relationship. It seemed to relate to other work that I was looking at. You know, my friends who were artists who were not painting from life, but dealing with uh, sculpture or architecture or more abstract elements than objects that you identify in specifically. So that's that's how I got to take, I took all those things off the floor and then I was involved in the floor. And, and the floor took me to think about stairs and other architectural parts of my house. And then I would think about the scale of the floor or a hallway. And I did this one painting that was a large hallway, but it was like a truncated pyramid shaped canvas. And it was very large. It was 90 inches at its base. And then I did, there's a painting that I did after that, where it's just the center of that painting. It's a long, narrow rectangle. It's called Untitled Hallway 1967-68. And, and what, what happened also was we moved from one apartment to another. So when I first started doing the floors, they were great, this place on Grand Street. Then we moved to another apartment that had really beautiful parquet floors and those are the wooden parquet floors. Yeah, I just got very involved in the the organic, the wood grain and 
I like, I was thinking, well, the wood grain is nature and the, the floor is a system, a grid. Well, the first the first floor painting from from '67 is parquet, and about as far as I can tell, you kept painting parquet floors until the early 1970s, like '71 ish. So, was the grid of the parquet what originally attracted you, or the pattern, or? Yes, it helped me because I, my vision, I have a hard time putting things in space, so. When you have that grid, you just, it's, it describes itself. You just need a vanishing point. And I did want to have this, this feeling of space in relationship to the surface of the painting. I've always had these two things, this kind of conflict or tension that I always feel about my life and myself. And that became representative of how I thought of myself in conflict. But the conflict was was how I saw life. It was a reality. And it was authentic to me. It was a reality. This is expressive of how I felt at that time. One of the one of the great things about your floor paintings is they seem to tie to so many kind of threads of, of art history. And I want to name a few of them, maybe starting with the earliest. And my question is going to be whether you were interested in any of these things. So one of kind of my favorite things in European painting is those early, usually northern European paintings, wherein the painters are showing off their ability to paint perspective by painting these kind of ornate tile floors that recede into space you know, lots of Netherlandish and Flemish painting. You know, anytime you have a, a, an enunciation, you have a, a dramatic floor going on beyond, below Michael and Mary, right? Were you interested or looking at those floors and thinking about how to make them contemporary? Or did that, did you? No, I wasn't thinking of them at all. If anything, the influence, the European influence on me was more a Byzantine art because of the the duality of the light and and the spiritual nature and spirit and the differences of realism that existed in the east as opposed to western europe but it was more philosophical my involvement well this was very early on when i was in school things changed but i would say that thinking about how light was used the churches or in the paintings also i i think the drapery on the floor of some of those early netherlandish paintings is in my memory but but i i think all of what you said is in my it's like source material in my in my mind a resource but it's not like i consciously access even Kayabat, I did not know about Kayabat and those floor scrapers, those paintings he did, until someone, until I did these floors, and someone took me to a lecture that Robert Rosenblum was giving at the Brooklyn Museum, and and I saw them there for the first time in that slot in the slides he 
shows. And then that just feeds more and more, and that's sort of how it goes, you know. But uh, most of what I do comes from my the environment and my my life, where I am in my life as uh, artist and uh, wife and mother. The critic John Yao, who has written about your work a lot, thinks there's a lot of Frank Stella, an address of Frank Stella in in the floor paintings. Do you agree? Yes, especially in those great paintings that I've never shown uh, when I did them. I was thinking of Frank Stella as I did them. Those early early striped paintings of Frank Stella's, I, I, I loved the way they were painted. The other striped paintings that come to mind are uh, kind of color field paintings, whether it's Gene Davis or, or Kenneth Noland, where they build paintings around, you know, kind of those stained stripes. And of course, your stripes are, are, are wood and their floors, and they are celebrating perspective rather than rejecting it. Were you conscious of addressing and even rejecting that work? No. No, I was looking at Fairfield Porter as well as Frank Stella and Edward Hopper. What I rejected in those years was the large painting, large mainstream. You know, it seemed like it was the guy as they were doing these. I didn't have very much confidence at that point. I mean, I, I was struggling trying to find a direction that open doors for me personally. And so I had, I didn't really have a studio until we moved to, to the country, to Gallagher Center. So, yeah, mostly I just didn't see myself building big painting. I didn't even know Donald Judd and Carl Andre and Saul LeWitt and Bob Mangold were, you know, in the circle that I was living in. I didn't see myself in relation to them at all. I, I identified more with maybe with Fairfield Porter and Alex Katz and Edward Hopper. One of the great things about the floor paintings is that little by little you started adding things to them. I think, and I could be, I mean, you know, there's the great example of the Brooklyn Museum painting Floor with Laundry from 1971 which I think has a little bit of the textile drapery um, that we were talking about a moment ago in regard to Northern European painting, but of course is also um, kind of a painting of the stuff you use to make paintings. But, but little by little, you started adding things. And one of the things you added after a few years was mirrors. Why mirrors? Well, wait, you skipped the laundry. Well, okay, we let's skipped- go back to the laundry then. You know, I, uh, these were my, the floors were monochromatic, but after a while, with nothing on them, and I was looking for enlarging my palette, and so I did this floor with laundry number three, which is has three pieces of laundry, and I placed them, thinking foreground, middle ground, background, and. I just like to go one, two, three. I do that sometimes with rulers or for whatever reason, I don't know. And the grid helped me locate those articles of clothing or laundry. And at one point I did one with a green piece of laundry in the center 
it 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 for me it created some incidents on the floor for looking because I was getting tired of painting the same floor and looking for expanding my you know where was I going with this and to get to the mirrors we have to say that we moved to the country the earlier works were all done in without a lot of direct sunlight. And when we moved to the country, there was direct sunlight coming in the windows on the floor. And I was very inspired by the light coming on the floor. I also, after I did those those wind, early window light on floor paintings, I also found this old mirror, which had this oak, frame on it. I found it in the house behind a door and I stripped it, stripped it and put it in my studio and I had a ready-made expansion of my floors. And, and you know, I, I never wanted to paint gymnasiums or large floors. I always wanted it to be something intimate. And so this just opened up this field of of reflection and I thought about how I could make use of it and so that was you know that was a whole group of works and and the floor that is the floor in the studio it's these old pine But mostly I got into thinking about reflection, you know, reflection and illusion. And um, it it just triggered my imagination to go what that means. The first absent image is the one where my image is absent. Because really what I wanted was this space. I'm, you know, I'm getting better at being able to figure out how to paint a wall, for example. At first, I would paint a wall in the most obvious black and white, you know, and then I'd look at Edward Hopper and I'd see how he painted a wall. And so I got very involved in making this space in on the canvas with the mirror. If I were to put a figure or myself in that space, it would change the space. It wouldn't. You couldn't enter the space. And the use of rulers started because it's flat on the floor. It doesn't change the space. Uh, It brings another dimension to that space. You mentioned the painting Absent Image, uh, which is from 1972. One of the just, I mean, there are a lot of things about this painting that... um, any lover of painting can get lost in with you know the contrast between the oak and the pine the color of the wall the molding on the wall the shadow of the mirror propped up against the wall but the thing that always gets me is that it's to get the view you got in the mirror you would have had to be in the painting and of course you took yourself out of the painting and hence it's absent was that idea kind of an, an important or breakthrough idea when when you started the, the mirror paintings, what made them work for you? Was it that you could include kind of a little bit of, I don't know, a game isn't the right word, but but that if the viewer was there and then had this sudden realization that, wait a second, 
for this to have been real, the painter would have to be there. And then, of course, the viewer realizes, oh, the painter isn't there. Oh, you know, was that, was no, that an aha that isn't, moment? Well, no, that, that's, a, that's an intellectual thing. But what, what I liked was that you could actually enter the space. I want you to feel like you can enter it. You feel the space. You know, it's not a trompe l'oeil thing because it's, it's space. It's not flat and close. So for those paintings, I really was happy that I could make something that drew you into it. And then you looked at the surfaces and you come back out. And I, that a standard I always come back to. I always want to, I don't want you to get stuck in the painting. I want you to come back and see the surface. But mostly space in the trees and, you know, it's in Cezanne. It's in all the art that I really respond to. Well, I respond to a lot of different things, but I really like space. Painting space, a space in a painting, that, but not, not an illustration. In illustration, you, you see people doing things and you might, it looks very real, but you don't, visceral, it's not visceral. After the mirrors, we get, we get rulers coming in and you... Well, 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 so, okay, so I've exhausted, you know, I've done all these mirror paintings and I had it. All my tools are hanging on the wall, the ruler and the tapes that I used to make all the little slats of wood in the parquet floor and the tapes I used just to make edges. So there's these rulers and these tapes, and I look at the wall and the light's coming in through the window on the wall, and I'm thinking, okay, maybe I should do a painting. So, so I like the idea of painting my tools, and that gave me the idea to paint. You know, once the, you took the mirror away, I had this empty wall with the ruler, and it met the elements that in, get me going, which is the light on the ruler, the idea of measuring. You can't really measure light because it's so elusive. And there it was on my ruler. But it was like the light on the floor that I had done at a certain time of day. And all of these things are, you know, I would say specific to a certain moment that I try to, certain element of time that's in it. And so I was also going through a kind of a very difficult time and I was doing these paintings. I made up some, this painting I think it's called Another Dimension, where it had a corner that came in and a corner that went out. And the corners were symbolic of how I was feeling. And and the floor, the floor was, it didn't come forward to, to make a feel like space. So, so I used a ruler on the floor to give it some foreground. And that was the first time I put the rulers on the floor. And then I started thinking about the different rulers. And a, lot of, a lot of choices I start to make. A lot of times it's a color. Like 
like I, I would like the color of the Lufkin ruler has this kind of rusty, rusty steel look, and uh, or it might be the name of Exacto, or uh, I can't well, all the different rulers. I forget their names. There's one in 36 by 36 at MoMA where the ruler is Fairgate, and and right there in the lower center of the painting it says approved type. I mean, one of the great things about the ruler paintings, you know, just like you know, you can get lost in the mirror paintings or lost in the in the parquet paintings, but you get lost in the ruler paintings because the mind initially thinks, you know, we're trained to think of rulers as truth: an inch is an inch, a centimeter is a centimeter, and of course, in your ruler paintings, you subvert all that. <laughs> well, a little bit. They're different, you know. No, uh, like the Lufkin ruler is the most true. The exacts are not always exact, and um, there are differences. But you know, I, I was, I play sometimes with with what's real and what it what the relationship of the rulers is about these different relationships that are diminishing. Like there's this one that was two rulers, one exact, one diminished. 1975. It's a drawing, and. So the ruler that's the close on the bottom edge is 12 inches. And the ruler that's at the top edge is 18 inches. The length of the 12th ruler. So the top edge 18 inch ruler is diminished and the 12 inch one is not. You know, at a certain point I'm playing with deception and illusion and it was all these different options all these different variations on this one on these different rulers and their relationships one one of the things that these that comes into the floor and the ruler paintings kind of near the end is linoleum that's because we moved again i was going to ask <laughs> yeah so we moved to Washingtonville, and in the basement, I found these old vinyl tiles. Previously, I I found that the floors were accurate, like. But then, when I did that one painting I told you about with the corner in and the corner out, that I think it's called Another Dimension, I started making up floors using the rules. And and I must say that each and all of these I use to make it. Because I thought it was arbitrary, I, I would use my age to have the vanishing point. So, like the one that's at the MoMA is 36. Then I think it was a 36. It's a less less angular floor plane than the later one, where I where I get older. <laughs> so the vanishing point is a little further away. I don't know. It's sort of like a making it mine instead of having it be arbitrary. <laughs> it's a, it's a, yeah, the, 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 the Boba painting is, um, is, is really great. In, in 76, one of those vinyl or linoleum paintings is titled, um, in memory of my father. It's a painting at the art Institute of Chicago. So before this painting, your titles are pretty much referencing what's in the painting floor one golden rule on light floor. So why why did you want 
to mark that with a, a specific painting? You know, I wanted to, I wanted to do something in his name, you know, do some tribute to him. So I thought, I, I mean, my mother's still alive, and I did for her. I did a drawing once called a sampler for Ethel, which is it's sort of like a Busby Berkeley drawing, you know, with all these rulers. It's in you can see that one. That was in the uh, catalog for the Craig Star Show. But but no, that was yeah, it was my way of memorializing my father. And he was 66, so I I thought he was too young, and so I wanted to do something to express in something incomplete, so I didn't have the whole ruler. I think I made the colors up. It, it is a marvelous green. <laughs> yeah, it. Well, I don't remember how I chose the color. And the black, there are black, like the tile color of the tiles that were I found here were this Manila color and the black. And and I love painting them. You know, I would paint each one, mark it off with tape, and have a big spatula. These are all acrylic paintings up until I did carbonite. So I would have this big spatula, and I would to these tiles, they would actually have a little dimension to them because the acrylic would be thick. And they each one would become like like little landscapes or little abstractions that I enjoyed because they were so tactile and painting them was so it was like frosting. And it had to happen once, you know. In in the late nineteen seventies you begin painting masking tape onto paintings. And at the same time the masking tape comes into your paintings, you begin to go outside. The paintings begin to be of or to refer to landscapes. Why did masking tape come into the work at the same time you began thinking of and looking at the outdoors? Well, the masking tape was there before I went outdoors. I was doing the paintings where I would do the rulers on the edge of an empty canvas with tape on one side and maybe show the edge of the ruler getting painted. The narrative about how I painted the tape or the narrative about how I painted the rulers became my subject. And that was also because I wanted something that looked alive, like it was happening. And when I made the canvas winter 1977, I, which was a larger canvas, it was 60 by 72, I had the rulers measuring each side of the canvas, and then I had the tape, so it was white. I didn't think of it as a season yet, but I wasn't able to hold the authority of the picture plane. It just looked empty. And I didn't want it to be empty. So I, what I, since it was winter, and I looked out the window, and that was, was a snowy day. I did this painting on paper that I used as a model, and then I 
look to see how that would look on this canvas, the real paper with the real painting on the paper. And okay, it looked like I should do it. So I made Trump Roy picture of the drawing in the, the snow scene on the paper in the center of the painting fastened by painted Trompe masking tape. And then I thought, oh, I'm going to do this for every season. So <laughs> I did it for every season. I did. And there's a missing painting called Changing Colors, which I don't know where it is. And I did. And I did a bring and I the changing seasons was the one with all the tape because I couldn't figure out the right color for fall. And I was also very interested in the transparency of the tapes. I enjoyed the painting these transparencies. So every time you put this masking tape or yellow tape on a different color, it changes color like a chameleon. And I really liked you know, I could just get involved in that and the layering of one tape going over the other tape and the tears. And I thought, well, I could really exaggerate the tape color, the change of the tape color at nighttime. It turns green, practically green. And, you know, it's the challenge of doing all these things. It, it just gets me going. So that's that's when I did Carbon Night, and I was doing using acrylic paint, but the luminosity of the nighttime with acrylic was it was the acrylic paint is very matte, and I thought, well, I'm struggling with this paint. I'm going to try doing this nighttime view in oil paint, and then I changed to oil paint completely. And so then the stains of the oil on the painted tape became something I got involved in. And so then we're, we're now we're in the 1980s. <laughs> so one of the, one of the just awesome things about the tape paintings is they seem to have a real sense of humor about themselves. I mean, sometimes, you know, when you were talking about the drips of paint on top of the tape, there's this moment of kind of reflexivity that I have, you know, standing in front of the paintings have just kind of found myself chuckling at a kind of the audaciousness and the cleverness and the, and the referential loops. Did you think of them as, as kind of having a, a smart sense of humor? Yes, I did. I really did. I'm glad you saw them that way. I, I, I can't remember this one drawing I have here, but I thought, Oh, this is, I want to, this is really ironic and funny or playful, and I like. I just thought, I thought it was another aspect of of what's possible. You know, I never had humor in my work before. I mean, sure you did. Well, not consciously like that was. You know, the not not like yeah, not consciously. That's right. Oh, I don't know. Come on. I mean, the the laundry on the floor is. I never, I never thought of that as funny. Never. They are funny looking back on it. But I, I, to me, they were just objects, color, different, 
different something to something to to mark the space or maybe I was just not aware that I was being funny maybe yeah they were they were dirty laundries I mean I would wait and go through the laundry I I mean I could have gone through all a wardrobe of different things looking for color but I don't think I did that and I would put a basket, you know, because it was in our bedroom, I'd have to put this basket over the, over the piles of laundry so they wouldn't get changed from day to day. And, and I didn't think I was, you know, I, I didn't think I was that, like the tapes are so deceptive. I didn't think the laundry, you know, they're a little more loosely painted. I didn't think... They had that kind of reality that the floors had. The fabric, you know, it didn't have, didn't feel like fabric, like the floor. I like everything to have that tactile sense of what I'm painting. Like if it's floor, I want it to feel like, you know, or wall or fabric or. One of the nighttime paintings you mentioned a moment ago is Zodiacal Light uh, from 1980 in. Detroit, and it is a landscape with tape, you know, kind of pinning it down to the canvas. So one of the things that happens in some of the nighttime paintings, but especially this one, is it's almost like you're playing with James McNeil Whistler. Yeah, I looked at him. So what 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 in him did you like that you think you were trying to or that you did get into these paintings? He has even less lights, and I don't know if. Like if you looked at this painting, this is a that zodiacal light is really the way it looked in 1980. Now there'd be many more lights. I mean, I just wanted enough lights so that the space, so you could feel the space. And it was still kind of rural where we are, and now it's much more suburban. And there are many more lights, and it would be very different. And what I looked at. Whistler was how abstract the surface could be. I like everything to be really fluid, one thing merging into the other. And that's part of the reason that I got involved in making the paintings about process, because you could stop the process at any point. And it had more of an energy or dynamic, because the brush strokes or whatever point... You, it wasn't resolved. I don't like it when something's too enclosed and static. I like it to feel like it could reach out and move out and almost like you could feel that stroke, that brush stroke. And so I could do that in the work about painting whatever I'm painting. And the narrative about painting the tapes and the, and then and then that's why what happened in these paintings like the tapes on the edges became like a foreground you know if you didn't have them on the edges the space wouldn't you wouldn't have something in contrast to that space in the distance and you could also bring the paint itself over the tape so that the transition wasn't sharp the, the, these overlapping clevernesses again. <laughs> I used to really look at trompe l'oeil paintings too, the early American Heberly and 
and and they used like the edge of a table or a piece of wood or and even Netherlandish art, you know, like there's this figure and his elbow or his arm is coming right or hand is coming right off the edge of the canvas. So I found that these were good devices for the space. And I mean, I, I just think I was learning all along. You know, I've kind of let us transition into the landscape paintings without really talking about landscape. It it seems to me, in hindsight, an an enormous step to go from painting the interiors of and, and the floors and such that we were talking about. You know, these these very inside spaces without long histories in American art to going outside and to painting these big landscapes, whether it's at night, like with zodiacal light, or during the day, such as with Vermilion Glow from 1982. Were you conscious of going from a small-scale space to not only the enormity of the outdoors, but taking on, you know, the biggest American art tradition? Yeah, it was daunting. What about doing that uh, appealed to you or attracted you to it? Well, you know, because I'm living in the country and I'm getting, you know, uh, I must say that you, your connection, you, you really get more and more connected to nature. And that's the reality of your world. And also, I'm getting bolder about dealing with the subjects that I thought I wouldn't be able to do. I mean, I... Um, uh, found out that I could use these big brushes and I could do these, look at the sunsets, you know. I mean, I never lived in the country when I was growing up. I grew up in New York City. So, I mean, I still look at the Hudson River painters, you know, and Thomas Cole. I think it's all that detail. I don't know how they do it. I don't know how they did it. They must have had really good eyesight. So for me, the tape was the way I could deal with the more, you know, the forms in the distance, the sky and the hills. And I live across from Shunamunk Mountain, where, you know, Storm King is just on the other side of Shunamunk. And anyway, I was, you know, I wanted to document everything that I was seeing out my window or I live on this farm. The colors, you know, in the winter, the color of the landscape is really different than I knew. I mean, there's so many yellows and violets and grays. And it just got, you know, I wanted, I, I, I would say that every time I did something that was a little more ambitious and a little bigger, I would be surprised that I could do it. You know, and it helped me with the tapes because every time if I took on a larger canvas than I could handle, I could still edit the landscape in relation to the surrounding canvas so that it was also not just landscape, but also about painting. It was about what happens in the interior of the studio and what's out in the exterior world. And and I think painting is a lot about what's interior. It's both. It's what's exterior and what's interior in people and artists. It's interesting that 
that you were identifying the specific landscape in a painting like Vermilion Glow. Because for me, Vermilion Glow looks like the opening scene of James Fenimore Cooper's The Pioneers, where they're coming down, you know, a hill in a sleigh in a snowy landscape. And so it has this, it's a painting that for me seems to remind me of America's literary history, its painting history, the tape, you know, the, the faux tape around the edges um, brings it into the present and into into not just your work, but all kinds of conceptual space. It's an unusually, to me, ambitious and kind of complete thing. So it's interesting to hear you say that you were gaining confidence as you were as you were doing these paintings. Was there a single moment that you decided to move on from from the tape or did it happen gradually? Where did the tape go? No, it it doesn't seem to suit the trees when they're closer. It it seems forced. It doesn't function in the same. For me, it doesn't work. (laughs) I think the paint, the definition of the paint and everything is closer. You, You know, when you see the paintings, you see paint like in the distant the views, the distant views, the surface is really like like ceramic. I mean, it, one one color just goes right clearly. And I, I would try to paint it almost in one painting. I mean, so that the whole surface is really gradually going one way. But when the trees, you have all these changes of form and color and Maybe you could put the tape in underneath everything, but it didn't. Se- it seems more like a signature than a function of what I wanted um, painting, which is to have it be about this, this form, these forms, and what happens with these forms, how they come out of each other, and and also, you know, I it's like I don't want it distract from that it's not the same story it's another story as as we get into the 2000s you are making paintings of individual trees and sometimes two trees a maple with no leaves on its branches in front of a pine tree for example it's impossible not to think of the modernist tradition when thinking of paintings of individual trees specifically mondrian did you, was your starting point going outside and painting individual trees, or was your starting point the history of art and Mondrian? Well, I've been told I'm Mondrian in reverse. <laughs> I love Mondrian. You know, I love what he did with the tapes. And I wasn't so crazy about his trees, but I mean, Cezanne is the hero or mentor. And, but Mondrian is just great because of all he did with the tapes. And, and I saw those drawings. I was amazed. I was blind, you know, just, I thought, oh, wow. I'm so connected to those. Just because, not not the trees, but the paintings he did where he used the tapes or left the tapes or I don't, what was it? I don't, Yeah, no, left the tape, left the tape on, yeah. Yeah, I I remember seeing a big Mondrian show at the Hague, I think it was, in in Europe, and I it was the first time I saw those tree paintings. You know, one of the things about both a painting like Vermilion Glow, 
where the trees on the hills in the distance are blurry. It's almost like they're moving a little bit in the wind. And winter maple and pine from 2007, where there's a pine tree behind a naked maple tree, is that there seems to be a little bit of movement, a little bit of shimmering, a little bit of non-staticness. Is that is that Cezanne? Is that the way he gets movements into his pine branches? Is that how he does it? He, you know, I think that comes from the struggle, his struggle, and it also comes from my struggle in the trees. That comes from, like, doing it over and over and over and trying to get it it's it's when you're so absorbed in trying to get that space and the intensity of it then you you're you're ac- you're accessing some other part of your brain that is helping you do it <laughs> get get that if that's what you want you know that's what i want i want what what Sisan wanted was that that life in the in the paint and in the form and on the surface you know so that and now you know i'm painting these leaves and that's even crazier yeah let me just let me set that up for a second so in 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 recent years starting in around 2010 2011 they've gone from being paintings of many branches of a tree to to really zooming in on groups of of leaves you know sometimes maybe 20 leaves sometimes more so why yeah why did you zoom in i mean to me they are well let me ask first why you zoomed in and then and then we'll talk about a couple other things about them partly because the tree is getting so big it's out my window and i don't see the whole tree i see like in the summer you know i'm getting older i can't deal with working outside like i used to in the summer i can't take the heat i mean i used to be out there in 90 degrees for a long time. And so I'm in my studio looking at this maple tree that's out the window and it's getting bigger and bigger. So I I have this, in the summer, the branch, I am just see all this foliage. And then in the winter, I'm looking at the tree, the t- upper part of the tree, because I really don't want to paint the trunk. I don't know why, but I like, the complication of the upper part rather than the solid presence of that big fat trunk. And so I got involved in these leaves and I, uh, even more than the leaves, I'm involved in how they flutter. And I'm thinking about Paul Clay. I'm thinking about where objects are like floating in space, only mine are real. And I'm looking at them and trying to figure out how to paint this form that's in motion. And I like it. <laughs> it's like crazy. It's interesting you mentioned Paul Clay because I hadn't, I hadn't thought of him. I mean, I, one of the things about these, these zoomed-in tree leaf paintings how they feel to me is if someone had taken an Ellsworth Kelly plant drawing and 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 blew it up into a painting and 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 finished an you know his idea if you will you know built and and so naturally my question is were Kelly's drawings of leaves interesting to you 
Yeah, they are. I think they're beautiful. They're really beautiful. But, you know, the I, I have to mention the other artist that I really love is Morandi. Mo, Mo you know, he paints the same bottles and he, those spaces around the bottles and between the bottles. And that's how I see my painting the same thing over and over again. Even, only what I'm doing changes because it's nature and it's growing or it's dying or whatever. And his bottles are permanent. But I, I love Morandi paintings. I think they're so great. So finally, I noticed in, in preparing to talk to you that in catalogs of your work over the years that there are a lot of photographs of you painting in plain air. You know, you painting outside right in front of a tree. Maybe that's the museum or the place that did the catalog that made that decision, or maybe that was important for you to have people see, for people to know that those paintings were the result of, of a direct personal experience. Oh, you know, El Decor did some article, and they took they took photos of me painting outside. You know, it was sort of romantic, I guess. And they really liked the way I looked painting outside. So maybe that's, but but also that's where I worked a lot is outside with the scaffolding. I I would strap the paintings to the scaffolding. And I have a shed that's not far far from there where I can put the painting in overnight. But I, yeah, I mean that that it shows you where I was working. I mean, it, it people people don't realize it's it's very liberating to paint outside like that. I must say, that's kind of what comes through in the pictures. That's why I asked. <laughs> I mean, the photographs. It just looks like you know. That you, that, you know, you get to do and be whatever you want, and there's nature serving you. It is like that. You're listening, you know. You're you're listening to the birds. You, you know, the deer and, and the, behind the trees. You're not worried about making a mess <laughs> or whatever. Yeah, it's out there. You're, it's, it is very liberating to paint outside. And and it's nice, too, for me, because, you know, we live in the house. My studio is part of the house, so it's nice to get out. Well, Sylvia Plymac-Mengel, thanks so much for talking with me. Thank you, Tyler. The Nasher Museum of Art at Duke University in Durham, North Carolina, presents Precarity, a new three-channel video installation created by Jonna Comfra the London-based artist and filmmaker. Precarity explores the city of New Orleans through the remarkable life and times of Charles Buddy Bolden, the first person known to have explored the sonic tonalities of the music we now call jazz. Beginning in 1900, Buddy Bolden was the most popular musician in New Orleans, celebrated for his raucously loud coronet and down-and-dirty style. King Bolden reigned until 1907, when he was permanently committed to the state insane asylum in Jackson, Louisiana with schizophrenia. Precarity presents a sonographic and visual history of Bolden and his legend, the emergence of jazz, and the incomparable city of New Orleans. Precarity is part of the Nasher Museum's permanent collection. It's on view through September 2nd at the Nasher Museum. Visit nasher.duke.edu.
The Hammer Museum in Los Angeles presents Made in L.A. 2018, the fourth edition of its biennial featuring artists working throughout greater Los Angeles. Organized by Hammer curators Ann Elgood and Aaron Cristoval, Made in L.A. 2018 fills the entire museum and features the work of 33 artists. Through drawings, paintings, sculpture, textiles, performance, video, photography, and installations, many newly commissioned expressly for the biennial, these artists exemplify the diverse and creative landscape of Los Angeles today. Find details in a full summer of related programs at hammer.ucla.edu. Made in LA 2018 is on view now through September 2nd at the Hammer Museum. Now through August 12th, the Wexner Center for the Arts at The Ohio State University presents Inherent Structure, a fascinating glimpse into the underlying sources and influence on abstract painting today featuring 16 artists, including Richard Aldrich, Kevin Beasley, Sam Gilliam, Arturo Herrera, Angel Otero, Laura Owens, and Ruth Root. Brought together by Michael Goodson, Senior Curator of Exhibitions at the WEX, the multi-generational group challenges historical associations with chance, gesture, and aesthetic purity, revealing the personal, material, and sociopolitical concerns at play in their practices through more than 60 captivating artworks. For more information, go to wexarts.org. Welcome back. My next guest is Los Angeles County Museum of Art curator Naoko Takahataki. She organized the Chiaroscuro Woodcut in Renaissance Italy, which is on view at LACMA through September 16th. The exhibition charts the rapid and rich development of the Chiaroscuro Woodcut from its introduction to Italy from the north in 1516 until the end of the 16th century. The exhibition is the first major presentation on the subject in the United States. The fantastic exhibition catalog was published by LACMA and Delmonico Prestel. Amazon has it for $59. There will be a link on manpodcast.com. Naoko Takahitaki, welcome to the Modern Art Notes podcast. Thank you. Before we get to the artist with whom you start the show, Ugo De Carpi, and his bringing of, of the thing to Italy, what is a chiaroscuro woodcut, and what does it do or offer that other printing techniques did not? So the chiaroscuro woodcut takes its name from the Italian term for modeling in light and dark, chiaro, light, and dark, scuro. The technique entails printing an image using multiple wood blocks. Each block is printed in a different gradation of a single hue, and it uses tonal contrast to create the three-dimensional effects. Chiaroscuro woodcuts therefore differ from linear, traditional linear black and white designs of woodcuts. Some capture the qualities of heightened drawings on tinted paper, while others achieve the more painterly qualities of a drawing worked up with wash or a work in oil. So in its most basic form, a two-block chiaroscuro woodcut entails a linear compositional design from one block and a complementary tone block which prints the background color and from which reserves of white are cut. So you get the effect of white heightening. You could add intermediate tones by cutting more blocks and at its most complex you would forego a linear design entirely and construct your design from interlocking and overlapping 
broad areas of color. I don't want to spend too much time on the technical stuff, but one of the real stories of the exhibition, just a narrative that literally unfolds step by step as a viewer goes through the show, is that these woodcuts go from being relatively straightforward and simple in around 1510 to by the end of the 16th century becoming extremely complicated and intricate and, and, and involving you know dozens of blocks and not just one or two. How fundamental is that progression to not only the story of the show, but why you were interested in doing it? So the Karaskir woodcut was introduced in Titian's Venice by Ubuda Carpi around 1516. It then takes root in Raphael's Rome and spreads throughout the Italian peninsula from Parmigianino's Bologna to Domenico Beccafumi's Siena. And alongside the artistic evolution and the different approaches to the technique, you do see this ambition to innovate the technical processes. So as you mentioned, at the start of the technique, you begin with a basic two-block procedure. Ugoda Carpi very quickly advances the technique to use a third and a fourth block. By 1518, you have his Aeneas and Anchises, which foregoes entirely the use of line, and it's an image constructed by these broad planes of color. 1527, you have, again, Ugoda Carpi, this time working with Parmigianino, producing his masterwork, the Diogenes, again, an image from four blocks. And then as the century progresses, you see printmakers innovating in order to overcome technical failings, to improve efficiency, but also to expand the technique's aesthetic possibilities. And you noted that by the end of the century, you have these incredibly ambitious prints and technically complex prints that are executed from a large number of blocks, in some cases printed on multiple sheets, and that's the case with Andrea Andriani, who represents the final flourishing of the technique. And I think in the hands of Andriani, the technique was kind of slowly starting to peter out, and Andriani's really trying to revive the technique as woodcut in general is starting to fall out of fashion. And so he's innovating in a way to produce prints that would rival the scale of painting. So you see a broadening of the function of the Karaskir woodcut, in addition to his looking towards new sources. He's looking beyond the traditional graphic sources or painting as sources and looking at sculpture, for example. So I think it's also that the technical innovation is driven not only by the artists and draftsmen who were working with the printmakers, but by the printmakers themselves. Let's talk about a few woodcuts that seem to have been particularly influential. One is Ugo de Carpi's two-block woodcut. I think it's a two-block woodcut after either a Raphael or Giulio Romano Hercules and the Nemean Lion from about 1517, 1518. I don't know if it's if it's your show or if this is the way it worked, but that Hercules and Nemean Lion image and riffs on it kind of pop up in the show again and again. Yes. Well, the, the subject itself was a popular subject within, within the Renaissance. And in general, subjects from antiquity were often taken up 
by Chiaroscurus. It's a very dramatic and powerful image. And in the hands of Uvuda Carpi, it really demonstrates his incredible refinement of cutting. If you look in the in how he uses hatching and cross-hatching of different densities to create tonal gradations and uh, to achieve the shadows and the modeling of the forms. As a chiaroscuro woodcut, it's still quite a basic approach in that it uses two blocks and the highlights are, are quite limited. Although you see him starting to understand how to balance the use of the tone block and the line block. The tone block is used more extensively, for example, in the background to delineate the landscape and to create a sense of atmospheric perspective. And as you know, the subject does get repeated in the hands, it's taken up again in the hands of Niccolò Vicentino. That subject, that composition actually, is then the model for Niccolò Boldrini. So Niccolò Vicentino around the 1540s, Niccolò Boldrini in the 1560s. One of the things you do a number of times in the exhibition, and of course in the catalog, which is really terrific, is you give us both chiaroscuro woodcuts and roughly contemporary etchings. And one great example of that you mentioned a moment ago, it's Ugo de Carpi's Diogenes, which is after Parmigianino. And I think we'll have on, on manpodcast.com all three examples of the woodcuts and the engraving why did you want to show the engravings with the chiaroscuro woodcuts? The engraving is by Jacopo Caraglio. It's after a drawing by Parmigianino. Parmigianino was interested in printmaking not only as a means of disseminating his designs, but for the inherent aesthetic possibilities that printmaking offered. And his first collaboration with a printmaker was with Caraglio in Rome. And the print, the Diogenes, which is in the exhibition, was sort of one of the great masterworks of that collaboration. Parmigianino clearly thought this was an important subject matter, and so he returns to it in his collaboration with Ubuda Carpi, which takes place shortly thereafter in Bologna, where Parmigianino moved following the sack of Rome. And, you know, it, it depicts Diogenes of Sinope, the, the Greek philosopher, seated in front of the barrel, which he made his home. There's the plucked chicken on the right, which is a reference to Diogenes' mockery of Plato's description of man as a featherless biped. And it, it's an incredibly erudite and, and even recondite subject matter, which reflects who the audience for these prints would have been, which was really sort of collectors of, of humanist learning. And I wanted to show the engraving alongside the trio of chiaroscuro impressions to demonstrate just how the different aesthetic possibilities of the engraving technique, which is linear, and the possibilities of the chiaroscuro technique, which not only is in color, but also achieves this incredible painterly quality. And the reason for including the three impressions of the Diogenes is to illustrate just how the selection and preparation of the printing inks impact the success of the composition. 
the earliest in terms of chronology of printing that you see is an impression in blue, which is from the uh, Blenton Museum. And this impression is noteworthy for the narrow chromatic range of the four printing inks. That is to say, it goes from a light blue to a dark blue. The inks are also incredibly refined so that you see these translucent panes of, of ink. Think of it sort of as overlapping panes of colored glass where you get this optical blending of the colors. And this enables very smooth tonal transitions from one block to the next and a very convincing sense of three-dimensional forms. In the last of the three impressions, which is printed rather than in different shades of a single color, it, it shifts from a light green to a dark brown. So already there you start to individuate the the designs of each block more distinctly, also because the inks are less finely formulated. And so you don't get the same optical blending of the printing inks. And so this emphasizes the surface of the image and therefore doesn't create as convincing kind of effects of volume and atmosphere as you have in the blue impression. The middle gallery in the show is full of work by the only artist in the show who is both a printmaker and a, pa and a painter, um, and that's Domenico Beccafumi. One of my favorite works in that gallery was his St. Philip, which has terrific drapery, uh, a terrific beard. <laughs> what, what does maybe Philip uh, show us and tell us about what Beccafumi contributes? As you note, Tyler, Domenico Beccafumi was the only example of a chiaroscurist in Italy who was both the designer and the printmaker. And his prints are these immediate spirited expressions of his remarkable vision. When you look, for example, at the St. Philip, viewers are, are often surprised at just the energy and wonderful vitality of the block cutting. And that differentiates it from the very refined line work that you see, for example, in the hands of a professional block cutter like Ugo da Carpi. And Bekafumi really probed the possibilities of the chiaroscuro process at each stage. And you get the sense of an artist who's approaching the technique more intuitively as a painter would rather than a craftsman block cutter. You get these very angular forms and these very narrow reserved hatchings that then turn into much broader highlights and suppler cutting. So you kind of see through his prints, his own advancement of his practice also, which is echoed in the shift in color towards more vivid hues. And what's really important about his chiaroscuro woodcuts is that they are of a piece with his work in other media. So Bekafumi was a, a draftsman, an incredible draftsman, and there is an example of a drawing by Bekafumi in the exhibition, which was directly preparatory for one of the combination technique prints that brought together engraving and a tone block. But he was known as a painter. And you see in his chiaroscuro woodcut this fertile invention and as you note the very his very distinctive figural figural style with this wonderful sway of the figure with these 
very heavy draperies that accentuate that form. And they express really, as you see also in his painting, his fluent understanding of dramatic chiaroscuro, which he achieves by layering different colored inks in the case of the chiaroscuro woodcuts or paint in the, in the case of his paintings. Speaking of Vicentino, uh, one of the really great moments in the, in the show is the pairing of a drawing of the miraculous draft of fishes, which is attributed to Raphael, with a woodcut closely, but not super closely, based on, on the drawing. How did that pairing come together, and what, if anything, do we learn from how the woodcut departs from the drawing? The drawing, as you said, is attributed to Raphael. It was executed around 1514, and it was preparatory for one of the cartoons for the Sistine Tapestries. It was therefore not intended to be a model for a print. It was repurposed by Niccolo Vicentino, either Vicentino had direct access to the drawing itself or from a close copy of it. Notably, the drawing has no direct marks of transfer, so we know that it wasn't used directly in the process of designing the Carasura woodblocks. Vicentino developed a very efficient formula for translating pen and wash drawings with white heightening into a chiaroscuro woodblock using typically three blocks and sometimes four. You do see another example in the exhibition of a drawing and a related chiaroscuro woodcut by Vicentino. That is the Apollo and Marcius Parmigianino drawing from the Morgan Library and the chiaroscuro woodcut that was made after it. And what you see is Vicentino uses the mid-tone block primarily to repeat what is in the drawing delineated in pen. He then uses the light tone block to emulate the kind of mid-tone ground, wash ground that was laid out in the drawing. And then he uses the darkest block to reinforce the darkest areas of shadow to reinforce the contours as he sees it in the drawing, either through different tonalities of wash or by using pen work, using the, the hatchings that are expressed through line work. And then the white heightening, of course, is emulated just by those reserves of paper. So it's important to note that whenever you see the white highlights in a Kerasir woodcut, those are not printed white highlights. That is just where the lightest tone block has been cut away, and so the white of the paper comes through. The last gallery features an artwork that we briefly mentioned a bit ago, and I kind of suspect it's the work that may have instigated or motivated the show in some way. It's an extraordinary triumph of Caesar by Andriani after Malpisi, which is after Montaigne, and Lacma's, it's been in Lacma's collection since 1990. It, it's, a, it's a work that required 43 blocks, I think, to produce. And, you know, a couple galleries in 80 or 90 years earlier, we were seeing two-block prints. And so here's a 43-block print. What is it and why is it so intricate? The Triumph of Caesar is Andreani's masterwork. It's uh, executed at the very end of the 16th century. It is after the painting by Mantegna, which was executed in 1485 in Mantua. Andriani's looked both 
to modern masters, but also to the great masters of the past. And he appears to have moved back to Mantua specifically to execute this print. First of all, he it requires a huge amount of financial outlay in order to prepare all the blocks. And so he turns to Vincenzo Gonzaga for financial support to meet these initial expenses. And it's for the Gonzaga family, a real kind of celebration of their patronage in Mantua and Andreani. It is really an attempt to produce a print that will rival the scale of painting and really elevate the chiaroscuro woodcut to an entirely new status. What what you see in, in the exhibition is our 10 sheets. These sheets would have been connected by chiaroscuro printed pilasters, which are absent in, in the LACMA impression. And Andriani was an exceptionally skilled block cutter, the fineness of lines that he achieves. And he was also a skilled printer in that he's able to register these blocks so precisely that the designs are accurately aligned. He produces inks that are also very high quality that enable this wonderful gradation of tones to create very convincing atmospheric perspective and and, and modeling of, of the figures. It's a, an incredibly detailed composition, multifigural composition with incredible decorative elements to it as well. And as you know, this is a print that is in LACMA's collection. It entered the collection in the, I believe, the late 80s, early 90s. And it was part of a major bequest of prints, mannerist prints, that came to us from a collector, Mary Stansbury Ruiz. And indeed, Chiaroscuro woodcuts do represent an interesting rich vein within our collection of 16th century prints and propelled, you know, my my interest in the subject. Oh, yeah. The last gallery is is, is pretty gobsmacking. People will, will love it. Naoko Takahataki, thank you so much for speaking with me. Thank you. That's all for this week's show. The Modern Art Notes podcast is edited by Wilson Butterworth. Special thanks to Steve Roden, who created the sound for the program. The Modern Art Notes podcast is released under a Creative Commons license. Please visit Modern Art Notes for more information. Thanks for listening.